This episode is brought to you by The Hartford, a leading provider of employee benefits and income protection products that is dedicated to standing behind U.S. workers to help them pursue their goals and get through tough times. For more information about The Hartford, visit thehartford.com slash employee benefits. We've also got a link in our show notes. Um, how are you? Most people answer that question with fine or good. But obviously it's not always fine, and it's usually not even that good. (laughs) This is a podcast that asks people to be honest about their pain. To just be honest about how they really feel. About the hard parts of life. And guess what? It's complicated. I'm Nora McNerney. And this is terrible. Thanks for asking. I speak at public schools quite a bit, and I always hold off why I'm there. They don't know why I'm showing up. I'm there to talk about addiction, and then I'll share some of my own story. And then when I get to that point where I'm like, I was in this drinking and driving accident, six people died, that's where the room goes quiet, you know? And people aren't used to hearing that sort of level of devastation. You've probably seen a car wreck on the side of the road at some point. Cars crumpled into each other, EMTs and firefighters swarming around. They're horrible, but we always look. We want to know what happened. Maybe you've been in a wreck like this. Maybe you've lost someone in one. But you probably haven't been the person who caused it. But Robert is. So there was a guy who was dying on the highway, and I just went over to him, and I was, he was screaming, and I just said, you've just been in a terrible accident. And then I just went over and sat on the side of the road, and I started holding my knees and rocking. So at that time, the police showed up and said, did you do this? And I said, yeah, I guess I did. Robert has spent years of his life since this accident bearing his darkest moments so that teenagers might avoid the depths of addiction that he faced, the choices he made because of that addiction, the consequences of those actions, some of which are so big they can never be righted. How does someone get back from that point? A point so low that so few people sink to, let alone come back from. And how did they get there? I grew up in a house where there was always alcohol available. I wouldn't describe my father as having an alcohol use disorder, but he was he drank constantly. Mostly beer, there was wine in the house. Uh, and my sister was religious, and I don't know if she's ever drank at all in her life. So I grew up as like, you know, an 80s kid where drinking was very modeled. Like the best, the shows we watched were Cheers and MASH. And in Cheers, it was like there was Cliff and Norm who went to the bar every day after work. And then MASH, they had a martini distillery in their tent. You know, it's just a different, different time. I started probably drinking like sneaking drinks when I was between 12 and 14 around then. And I started, like many of the kids back then, smoking weed about the same time. 
Um, weed was probably easier to get than alcohol. I think that's probably still true because alcohol is so regulated. And for me, it wasn't like a thing of wanting to fit in so much. I just was genuinely curious about substances themselves. I, you hear all these things and drink alcohol and it'll make you act goofy and you'll lose all your sort of social filters. And if you smoke weed, you'll be like really laid back. And if you take hallucinogens, you can see things that aren't there. And and so I wanted to do those things. I just wanted to know what that was like. I didn't understand how your brain could do that. I always thought of myself as doing sort of a chemical experiment with all of the above and whatever was put in front of me. Throughout high school, when bad things would happen in my life, you know, I had a friend who had been in a drinking and driving accident. He ran through a mailbox, a brick mailbox, and a brick split his head open. And he lived through that. But after that, he had, you know, the mental capacity of maybe a two-year-old. And so when that happened, the way we handled that was not to discuss it. It was we got high at it. That's just what we did, you know. That was my resource for when things go bad, this is what you do. This is how you handle life. So that's how he handled life. And it didn't work all that well. In between high school and college, Robert ended up in court-mandated counseling for about a year after a drinking and driving accident. This was a new scene for him, sitting in a circle of a lot of older, tough guys who were bearing it all for their AA group. I started talking about their fucking feelings. I was like, what is this? (laughs) You know, I'd never seen anything like that in my life, so... So I was like, whatever they're doing, I want to do that. But I didn't want to not drink. <laughs> I like the community. I like how open people were and how they talk about things so openly. Especially like old, older white men, you just didn't see that. I wanted whatever they had because it felt like I belonged in something. But they were like, you know, they were talking about like, beating up little ladies with baseball bats, you know, and I had never done any of that stuff. So I was 18, you know, so I just felt like I didn't fit in. Then I started going to um, other Narcotics Anonymous meetings because they had a younger crowd. And I always joke, I'm like, oh, the girls were better looking. That was why I went, you know, even there, I did that for maybe like in and out for like a year. So I, I guess I was like 19 or something, maybe 20. And then all my friends were going off to college and like partying. And I was like, I didn't have any like evidence that this was a problem other than like sometimes things went a little haywire. Most of my friends who were in college sort of said the same thing, right? They went off to school, they partied and whoa, it got out of control. And now I reel it back in. So it was hard to see as a problem. I just thought maybe I'm just around the wrong people and I don't know where the right people are. So if I can go to this place, that'll solve it. I went to college and it was a party for all of nine months, maybe. And then I checked myself into a treatment center and I had met a woman who I spent, I think, the next nine years with uh, and had really started to mellow out. You know, we had a wedding in like her grandmother's backyard, like little grassroots, very sweet. But we never signed a marriage certificate. In fact, we were very poor. We went to go buy go downtown to get the marriage certificate. And both of us were like, there was a line. We had money in our pockets. So we we're like, let's go to the bar, have a couple of drinks. And we just never got a marriage certificate. <laughs> so we never got legally married. We were together for a few more years. And then one night, I think she had just reached a point where she's like, you know, I've, I've really had it. And she walked out and, and I didn't even know there was a problem. I think we really cared about each other a lot. I think we grew up together. We were young when we met and we were trying to put a life together. I think 
I probably, like looking back, wasn't very present for a lot of the marriage. I think my marriage today is very different. But we were good friends. There wasn't a lot of fighting. There wasn't like, we didn't argue a lot. We had very similar worldviews and even similar upbringing, you know. So I think we were good friends. We, but my use was increasing and I, my dependence was increasing. And I think it was just really hard for me to be present in her life. And so I just ended up like losing. I was just high all the time. I got, I ended up losing my job. My house was foreclosed on, so now I'm homeless. And then the only thing that's actually helping me feel okay is the drugs and the alcohol. So I'm not going to stop that. That wouldn't make any sense at all. And then I started having a lot of suicidal ideation, right? So then I wake up every morning, I'm sleeping on a friend's couch, and then this friend's couch, and I'm driving around with a toothbrush in my car because then I don't know where I'm going to be tomorrow. And so then I'm thinking, like, I don't, I'm not sure that I can keep living at all. So I wake up every day with a suicidal ideation, and rather than kill myself, I drink. I get high. It helps me make it through the rest of the day. Drugs and alcohol are how Robert gets through the pain of being alive. He's 32, and he's been through a series of big losses, including the death of a very close friend. He feels like he's coming undone, and even though it might not look like it, he is trying. He spends more time with family. He spends more time trying to get sober. Robert's substance abuse has a cycle to it, and part of that cycle is thinking that he's on sure footing, playing with the idea of sobriety and moderate alcohol consumption. But what is moderate alcohol consumption? Because, and people hate to hear this, there is no amount of alcohol that is actually healthy for you. It's just so well marketed. It's a part of American culture. Alcohol is American culture. And how'd you guys like the shots? I drank all five, bitch. (laughs) Walk. I'm still sweating out fireball. My hair smells like cigarettes. But if we don't keep going, at least on some level, we're going to crash. Relax, and I'm ready to party. Can I get you something to drink? Cosmopolitan? Cosmopolitan. Cosmopolitan. Wants to play a true American. I'm in. I'm in. That sounds like a great idea. So it's 50% drinking game, 50% life-size candy land. Well, it's more like 75 drinking, 20 candy land. And by the way, the, the floor is molten lava. It's actually 90% drinking, and then it's got a loose candy land-like structure to it. Sometimes you wanna go where everybody knows your name. Societally, there is nothing dissuading us from participating in the culture of alcohol. There's only the encouragement to participate and participate heavily. The CDC says that binge drinking constitutes having five or more alcoholic drinks on one occasion for a man and four or more drinks on one occasion for a woman. I don't know about you, but by those measures, I was binge drinking almost every time I consumed alcohol as a young adult and adult adult. There was zero sense of moderation and zero incentive for moderation. My friends and I just wanted to get drunk. 
And the more you drink and the more people you know who drink, the more normal all of this excessive, crazy drinking seems. If you drink like I drink, Halloween's a great holiday, Halloween and New Year's Eve, because everybody looks like you do for the night. So you're not doing anything abnormal. This, Halloween 2003, is the night that changes everything. Hi, everyone. I have a podcast suggestion for you. If you like the sound of two women talking, which is my favorite sound, it's called Listening to the Forever 35 Podcast. Am I still 35? No, but I was when the show started six years ago. There are six years of episodes. Hosts and best friends Kate Spencer and Dory Shafrir talk to listeners about everything. It's a real comfort listen. Find Forever 35 wherever you listen to this podcast. Halloween of 2003 is the night that sets everything in motion. But it's the events of the following day that are forever etched in Robert's mind. Robert spent Halloween like he spent most of his days. He woke up hungover and smoked weed. He did his job assignments as a tile worker. And by the end of the day, he was drinking heavily with a group of bar friends, playing bluegrass music, and hopping around town. It's now November 1st. I woke up that morning, and I was just hungover. I was living with a friend named Tommy. He was a really good, he was a good guy, but um, he wasn't there. And I had a little dog named Gracie who I named after Gracie Allen, George Burns, his wife. And I just love that dog so much. And so I woke up and played with her and wrestled and like, played tug of war and all this stuff. But I was feeling sick because I was hungover and I was pretty severely hungover because the day before it's Halloween. So that's, I think I was tired a lot in those days, a lot more tired than I am now. And maybe a little sad and a little lonely. And I went to the local, it was a sandwich shop, but it was a bar where we all hung out. And it was like 11 in the morning. And I was just trying to take it easy that day. And so I just had tried to order a cup of coffee and they had run out of coffee. So I ordered a beer mostly to make the hangover go away. It was a kind of a normal day for me. There was nothing that unusual about that day. I had gotten to a point where I didn't like people to know how much I was drinking. So I would not spend a lot of time at one bar or another. So I spent a little, maybe a couple of hours there and then went to another bar down the street and spent some time there and saw some friends there and hung out and then another bar that evening, you know, but I was just really genuinely just tired and wanted to go home. And I had been out late the night before my hangover was mostly gone. I was feeling like comfortably numb. I didn't feel intoxicated. I wouldn't say I drove intoxicated frequently that time. That night, I didn't think I was intoxicated. So I'd gotten to the van to go home. (laughs) 
Highway 54 in Raleigh, North Carolina, behind the state fairgrounds. And so they T-boned into another car and somebody had been hurt. And some people heard that accident or saw that accident and a bunch of people stopped to help. So some kids going to a college party, I think, they stop, they see this accident has happened and they pull this guy out of the car. And another guy who's on a bicycle hears the accident and he rides up. And, and it's not even late, I don't think. I think it was like around 8, 15, 8.30. And I hop in the van and I gotta go home. It's only three miles to my house, so this is like textbook. Another couple, had a football game had just let out at the local university, at NC State University. People had, were leaving that and a couple had stopped with their, I think two of their three sons in the back of the car and they pull over the side of the highway to help. So just a bunch of people stopped to help. And I'm driving home and I took that highway because I knew there wouldn't be any police on it. It was a straight shot. I got to make one right turn and then I went. And I came over a hill and there's just a bunch of people in the middle of the road. So I didn't know what to do. So I slammed on the brakes, which didn't work because of analog brakes kicking in. And then I looked across the highway and I was like, I'll go across the highway. There wasn't anybody there. So I turned it turn the wheel to try to head that way, which might have been the worst thing I could have done. It's been almost 20 years since that night, and I can still see their faces before I hit them. And I didn't even know that I had hit them. I didn't know what had happened. I was just trying to, I didn't understand why there were people in the room. So I just tried to go into the oncoming lane. And then I wasn't wearing a seatbelt, so I was thrown out of the car seat because the airbag had gone off car alarm was blaring so I got out of the car and then it was like it was such a confused scene there were like there were people screaming and there were bodies and there were people running trying to help and then a kid who had just watched both of his parents get killed said who did this and so I started screaming oh my god I can't believe I've killed these people then I wanted to help, but I didn't know what to do. So there was a guy who was dying on the highway and I just went over to him and I was, he was screaming and I just said, I, you've just been in a terrible accident. And then I just went over and sat on the side of the road and I started holding my knees and rocking. It was about that time the police showed up and said, did you do this? And I said, yeah, I guess I did. And so they put me in the car. It's one of those things your body doesn't know how to process. I, I think about this often with people do hit and runs, and we always think that's like the worst thing anybody can ever do. But I will say I understand why people run. I didn't feel like, oh, I got to get away from this. I'm going to be in so much trouble. It's more like something that's just buried deep down within us that when you're encountering this much overwhelm and trauma, then we have to flee. We have to get out of there. and. Fortunately for me, legally, I froze rather than fled. I tried to go help somebody, but I didn't know what to do. They took me down to a local ATC center or something. And um, while I was in there, they said, we have a warrant for your blood here. You can either fight us and we can strap you down to the table or we can just take it. I said, well, I wasn't trying to be a dick. You can take my blood. I just was told not to take a breathalyzer. So we had to wait for blood results to come back. And I figured, that, like, I might be close to the legal limit, but I wasn't beyond it. And it turned out I was over twice the legal limit. But I just had such high tolerance, you know. 
so at that point when we were walking out of there to be taken to the local county jail i heard on the television that an alleged drunk driver had just struck and killed i think six or and they might have even said eight people or something like that i ended up hitting nine people all together and six of them died but even then i was like no i couldn't have done all that certainly there's just some there was so much chaos they just don't know what's happened yet or something so they took me to the jail and about that time i think i just started i don't know involuntary twitches and eye twitches and shakes and they put me on suicide watch in the county jail they just give you a suit made out of like a paper towel so you can't hang yourself and they, the cells made out of like it's like a fish tank like they, everybody can see you so they can see you go to the bathroom not that by that time all everything's shutting down anyway you don't have to go to the bathroom yeah that was that was it and i didn't know like enough about the criminal justice system to know like what they do for anything like that yeah i'd never thought about prison or jails is that something you get a death penalty for is that something do they put me in prison for the rest of my life for i had no idea not you know and i think the very first time i really went this is just definitely a problem was i maybe a few days later my it's all mashed up in my head still so i'm but i was told by my family that bail had been set and they could bail me out of jail until the trial but they were afraid to do that because they thought that if they did it I might drink and get high or kill myself and it was such a huge media event at the time that I was afraid that they might be right and then so I remember going holy shit I've been waiting like my whole life for things to get bad enough I've been homeless twice I'd lost every relationship. Now six people have been killed and it still wasn't bad enough. So there's not a bad enough. During my trial, many of the family members got up to say their piece. I had pled no contest, which is like guilty, I guess. Um the family members had all begged over and over, whatever you do, please don't drink again. Please don't use drugs. So that was done for me. It was just For a while I was like I'm just going to try this as an experiment. I think I had this very visceral thing of like I've been getting high more of my life than not. <laughs> you know, like what would happen if I just stopped? If I just stopped doing that? This sounds so stupid to say. I I think this a lot though, but I back then I genuinely didn't see it as like putting other people at risk. I was putting my driver's license at risk. Eventually I'd get caught Many of my friends had DWIs. It's going to be expensive and annoying, but so what? So I didn't see it as, oh, this could really harm somebody because I've heard other people say the same thing. Oh, I think I'm a better driver under the influence. I don't think that was true for me, but I think what they're missing in that equation is that might be true. You might be able to pull it off all the time successfully as long as nothing happens. in this discovery nobody was saying oh he was weaving i wasn't speeding i was just keeping it in between the lines as long as nothing unusual happened i would have been home probably safe and sound that night but six people are dead an 18-year-old college freshman a young father and his friend who had just gone to a college football game a couple visiting from charlotte 
a man who lived nearby. All Good Samaritans who had gotten out of their cars to help two people who had gotten into a fender bender on the highway. At the sentencing, when the families gave their victim impact statements, the parents of that college freshman offered to donate his remaining college money to Robert's drug and alcohol rehabilitation. Robert was sentenced to up to 12 years in prison. He served nine. You can't even complain about that amount of time. They genuinely could have locked me up forever. Prison and jail, there's like a parallel process, right? So you're trying to wrap your head around this whole huge event thing that's happened, this person that you've become. And you still have to survive like jail culture, prison culture. You have to not get stabbed, not get raped, not all the things that go along with that. I was so sad all the time. And I didn't think there would ever be a way I could not be sad anymore. And that lasted for years. Every day I would just, I cried so much that it just hurt. Like my physical cheeks hurt just from the, I don't know, from the tears. And they just wouldn't stop running all the time. Just couldn't believe I had done this to people, you know? Not even just the people who had been killed, but my God, their families. And there's just no way to make it better, no way to take it back. So I had a friend, Dino, who I was locked up with. He'd been locked up since 1957. Still, he'll never get out. And he was just immensely helpful for me. But I remember asking him one time, how do I make amends for this thing? And Dino was like, you just do it by the way you live, by the way you live your life. And so I think that became really profound for me. I had been um, passively suicidal for like a couple to a few years. The yard had just closed and I was going back in from the yard and it, I don't, I couldn't even tell you the time of year, but I remember going into my, I was lucky. I was at a single cell unit for a while. So I had my own cell, which is actually nicer than being surrounded by bunks. But I, so I had, I went back to my cell and it was sunset. You can't see out of the windows. They're just Lexan and they're all scratched up. So you can't see anything, but I remember the light was coming through the windows and I had this sort of epiphany where I was somehow obsessively making this whole thing about me still and like all I could think was like poor me oh my gosh I can't believe I've done this I can't believe how I've hurt these people and their families and how am I going to be this person who walks through the world is this who's done this horrific thing this unfixable thing and it was I just had it was just this great moment of oh man I'm still making it all about me I'm not even grieving them properly because I'm not giving them the space for their grief. I'm still being self-obsessed. And and I remember thinking, like, that dishonors them. My sorrow, and and so I don't want that misunderstood because I think it's important to have sorrow and grief. But there was a point where my sorrow was doing them a disservice did the opposite of honoring them. Then I was able to think, okay, well, what should this look like? How do I um, 
turn this into something that can be useful and helpful? And I didn't know the answer to that question. So that's, it wasn't like, let's clean out the old barn and put on a show. But that was the moment where I think I started realizing, oh, I think I can heal and I can get out and I can help. And that the story doesn't have to just be a tragedy, that there can be, that this can actually help other people too. Where do you start? <laughs> that started in prison. It was Christmas and they had asked me to join the men's club in prison. So the men's club is just like this. They take pictures during visitation of people with their families. They sell the pictures for $2 and we raise money for different things around the community or whatever else we can do. And so I was in the men's club and it was Christmas time and I had been called down to programs to wrap Christmas presents that somebody had gone out and bought for us to give to other people's kids, men who's, who were incarcerated. They weren't home, so they couldn't provide presents. So, so we would wrap presents and their kids would get some presents. And so I'm in programs and I'm laughing because I'm like, I have to be now monitored in my life to manage tape and scissors. I am that dangerous to society that I can no longer have tape, <laughs> you know, <laughs> But it was okay. It was Christmas time, you know? And so I'm in programs and I'm wrapping these presents and I'm like, man, this is actually kind of awesome. I feel pretty good, you know? This is what I should have been doing the whole time. This is what you're supposed to be doing with life. And then it turns out that I have that epiphany and then they don't let you go. They're not like, okay, you get it now. You can leave. I think I still have like six more years to do after that. But it did sort of add to the, oh, okay, it's really, that's what it's about service to others you know maybe not everybody but that's certainly what i'm here to do and when i do that i'm living my sort of right life that's there's nothing that can compare to that there's no amount of money there's no amount of stuff that just can compare to i can help other people there's not much use in you just spending the rest of your life wearing a hair shirt and beating yourself with a whip get to work go do something find a way to help people and so that was huge for me because all of a sudden I went from being another person in this accident whose life had been devastated to being a person in this accident who had a purpose. What did it look like to build a meaningful life once you were already dead, once you were already in prison? I don't know if this is a true story, but our book, Mr. Fuller, was a sort of famous inventor. And back in 1929, during the stock market crash, he was he had lost everything. He was a newlywed, and he had stood on the edge of a cliff, and he was like, that's it. I'm going to take my own life. He just couldn't go on like that. And there's also a great quote from the movie Heathers from the 80s, from the 1980s, that Christian Slater, was he the guy? Said this in that movie, too, that was similar. He goes... Now that you're dead, what do you want to do with your life? That's my Christian Slater impression. But that was Buckminster Fuller. It was like, you know, as long as I've as long as I've reached this point where I'm no longer alive, then I can do anything. If life is empty and there are no rules, then I get to decide what my life is going to be. All the norms that we grow up, all the expectations that we grow up with for ourselves, thrown out the window. And now I'm empty. I'm just a vessel for life, and I don't have any expectations or norms. I can go anywhere with that. I can do anything with that. The question becomes, how do you make that meaningful? So you can fill that bucket in a lot of different ways. But but if you want to have a good life, to me, it seems, the way to do that is to really embrace the joyful moments, really celebrate everything that we can. 
and I kind of thought of my sobriety as that of like, all right, I'm going to stay sober and I'm not going to hurt any more people. There's no way that in hell I'm going to do that anymore. So we'll just see where this thing goes. And if it reaches a point where I have to drink or get high again, I'm going to take my own life because I'm just not willing. Because every time I've gotten high, it's gotten worse. And I'm just not, I don't know what's worse, but I'm not going to find out. Robert seems like he got everything he could out of his time in prison for the crimes he committed. Prison gave him the time and space to actually reflect on his life and what had led him to that prison cell. It aided him in getting and staying sober, at least at first. He even met his current wife through writing letters to her while he was in prison. That's a whole other podcast. But what comes after prison? Who is Robert nine years after the worst day of his life and the last day of six others? Hi, everyone. I have a podcast suggestion for you. If you like the sound of two women talking, which is my favorite sound, it's called listening to the Forever 35 podcast. Am I still 35? No, but I was when the show started six years ago. There are six years of episodes. Hosts and best friends Kate Spencer and Dori Shafrir talk to listeners about everything. It's a real comfort listen. Find Forever 35 wherever you listen to this podcast. It seems to be recording. All right. Okay. Those are some good bird sounds we have. Yeah, actually, I've got the window open. We live across from like a farmland, so there's not much here. Is it going to be a problem with cars driving past on occasion, or should I? I like a little texture okay. to audio. Like I like hearing. I, like a, I love hearing a crow. <laughs> I really do. As I sit down with Robert, I don't know what to expect, but a harmonica solo definitely wasn't on my list. Can 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 I ask one favor real quick? Megan, yeah. Megan, Meg. Okay. That I, if I can, I'd like to play harmonica for a minute. Can I give you the background story behind it? Yeah. All right. I've always played music and I've always played something. I was in high school band and then I started playing harmonica years and years ago. And when I was in active use, when I was drinking down South, they had liquor houses. That doesn't really exist anywhere but the South anymore. So liquor houses tended to be in people's neighborhoods. They were usually like in black neighborhoods. Way back in the day when black people weren't allowed to own businesses down south, they would just start selling liquor out of their living room. And so most of the neighborhoods that I went to that were like poor neighborhoods had liquor houses. And I would go there and hang out and you kind of had to know somebody. And we'd play music and I'd play harmonica, right? And so what I thought was like, I was like Alan Lomax, who was the music ethnologist. I was like, so I'm studying this culture that's going away. And the truth was I was just staying drunk all the time. So I would do that and I'd play in bars and clubs and everything else. And then when I got locked up, I was in the prison choir, which was just a blast of playing harmonica there. And I was like, I don't know. And I'm not religious. I just wanted to play music. And that was the only way I could navigate that. So when I got sober, I was like, I don't know where I'm going to play music anymore when I get out. 
because I don't really go to bars. It's not really my scene and I'm not religious, so I'm not going to play at churches. So now I do a lot of public speaking at different places and I always have this sort of captive audience. And now I'm like, well, now I can make them listen to me play harmonica. Um, it also helps me relax a little bit. So I wanted to play harmonica for you guys, if that's all right. In the almost 12 years since he was released from prison, Robert got married, had a daughter, became a therapist. So describe, I guess, a day in your life. I don't do like traditional sort of therapy anymore. So a lot of my job, yesterday I was, I still do like a lot of the same sort of stuff that you do in therapy. So I still use motivational interviewing, CBT, a lot of the other stuff, but I just don't like being in an office very much. And I don't think it's good for other people necessarily either. So a lot of the clients that I work with, we went kayaking yesterday and this morning I met somebody and we went for a hike in the woods at seven in the morning. And then I went to the Zen center and sat meditation for a while. I'm a long distance runner. So I go, I try to run a few times a week. So I'll have my work day, which is just interacting with clients. I spend a lot of time talking about addiction and trying to help people through challenging moments. So I'm on my phone a lot. I like a lot of us because I'm texting clients a lot just to try to help out there. And then at the end of my day, we sit down at a table in the kitchen. We have dinner. My, we laugh and joke and play. And eventually my daughter goes to bed begrudgingly. She goes upstairs. My wife and I make tea, hot tea, just about every night. We sit down and watch some form of media or we play games or we do a puzzle. And that's kind of it. <laughs> you know, it's, it's kind of boring, you know, but, um, but I also think like, so that's what's never lost on me. I watched two guys when I was locked up get into a damn knife fight over a pillow, over who's, who owned the pillow in this cell. And they're, they're fighting each other, they're trying to cut each other up over it. So, Give me boring. I'll take boring. That's great. I love a good boring night at home. (laughs) There's nothing better. Right. (laughs) I was working with somebody recently who was in a drinking and driving accident and somebody lost their life. So we're talking about preparing for prison. And I keep saying to them, like, honestly, some of the best people I've met in my life are in prison. (laughs) Just because we're all so vulnerable and stripped down and there's just nothing left to hide. And It'll ruin you for conversations on the outside. Most of us want to have good, big, deep connections, you know. So I think that really helped in prison. It was like just being able to like sit down and talk with a complete stranger about where they've been, what they've been through, what happened to them. And then you hear just the most devastating stories over and over, and you realize that this is all of us. It's easy in prison because there's the very obvious, how did you get here? but when you get outside of prison, you find out that that still holds true. We're all in this. We're all going through some stuff. My wife actually had, she had gone to a talk and came back and I was working in the yard and she was like, I just heard this great thing. You got to hear it. And it was, we are all the victims and perpetrators of trauma. And I just loved it. I just think it captures the whole thing.
I think what people are going to wonder is how a person can carry what you carry. And your wife had such a great quote that she was able to share with you, which is, we are all victims and we are all perpetrators, but something of the magnitude that you are carrying is really rare. And to maybe people who have lost family members in a similar way, like you are the big bad wolf. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And there's no way to ever make that better. I was actually just at a 12-step meeting the other day talking about this. It's a very specific thing. I, like all people, like most people, I shouldn't say all, but I want to be liked. I want people to like me. And I had to come to terms with that, that those family members are never going to like me. It doesn't matter what I do. It doesn't matter how much joy I bring to the world or how many people I help. They have the absolute right to hate me. And I can be big enough to be hated for that. That's okay. If that's what they, if that helps them heal, then I owe that much. So I think about them all the time and everything all the time. I think about the people who lost their lives in every joyful moment that I have. That's something that I took was, was that ability. There's no way to make that better. And I wish I could. It's just not. Uh, I think I'll always, I'll always be, be um, sad about that. I never, you know, we just never wanted to, Want, nobody wants to hurt anybody like that. Robert still commemorates the anniversary of the crash. Though it looks different every year, he will always carry the significance of November 1st. I did a marathon fundraiser in prison. I almost got thrown in the hole for it because I was trying to reframe that date. And so I had been a long distance runner and I was going to, and we had snuck out, me and some guys that worked in the wood shop had snuck a tape measure out and we went out and measured out the goat track around the edge of the fence. Just measured out how many laps so we could do the math and figure out how many laps were a mile. And we figured out it was 182 or something like that laps. So I had talked to Kara, who was outside, and she was outside at the time. We were dating at the time. And I said, I want to do a fundraiser for Mothers Against Drunk Driving. Just as a personal, let's do that. And so she did all the fundraising outside. It was like writing family and friends, and then I'd write letters to anybody who would make a contribution. And the only day I could do it on was November 2nd. At that time, she was allowed to come to the prison and bring food, so she came on November 1st, which was a Sunday, and then I fueled up and ate everything I possibly could eat. And then Monday did the sort of marathon. And we ended up raising over like $5,200 or something, over $5,000. You had said that you make amends by the way you live. How do you live? How do I live? So I try to model 
joy to others all the time and all things. And so I had a client, a woman I've been working with for a while, I love her dearly, but she said, some people are a gla or glass half empty and some people are glass half full. You're a glass full person. At that time we were talking about rainy days and I was pretty excited about a rainy day. So it took me a while to figure out, oh, it was because on rainy days when I was locked up, you could go out in the yard and nobody would be on the yard, so you had the yard to yourself, right? So you start learning to love rainy days. But I do think I'm pretty optimistic and I think I really try to convey that to other people. I try to live really joyfully in everything I do. I think it's really important. I think I, my victims lost everything, everything. I owe them, I owe them a joyful life. Otherwise, it's, it's just that much more wasted. My friend Marion, I've said this on the podcast about a million times, but she had said to me she lost her husband and then a, maybe a year or so later she lost her son. And she said, we have a sacred responsibility to live fully in the face of loss. And, and the next line of the email was, it's a bitch though. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's not always easy, you know. It's a bitch, but I do think like you do have it does feel like a sacred responsibility. Yeah. It feels like it could also be a lot of pressure. Is it a lot of pressure? Maybe. I don't know. It feels really good to me most of the time. You know, I feel like like oh, like um you said I have the sacred responsibility and I think not everybody is fortunate enough to wake up every day knowing what they have to do. We have a sacred responsibility to live fully in the face of our losses. And we also have a sacred responsibility to live fully in the face of our mistakes. Our mistakes, no matter how fatal, how tragic, how irreversible those mistakes are. Because there is no math that will ever make what happened to the six people Robert killed okay. There's no number of hours that Robert can counsel people through addiction, no number of people he can guide through the criminal justice system, no amount of money that he can raise every November 1st for the rest of his life that will ever make what happened okay. You can't do math with human lives beautiful, vibrant lives that did not deserve to end on the blacktop of a highway on a cold November night. Their value and worth is immeasurable, unquantifiable. You simply can't balance an equation like that. You cannot do math with human lives. Robert knows this. He came to terms with this long ago, during his time in prison. And that doesn't make his efforts to do as much good as he can with his life futile. He simply has the fortune to carry out his sacred responsibility.
This has been terrible. Thanks for asking. And I'm Nora McInerney. This episode was really hard to make. There are so many layers of pain within it, and I want to give major credit to Megan Palmer for discovering this story, uncovering this story, and working tirelessly to produce a story that honors the humanity of everyone involved. Terrible Thanks for Asking is an independent podcast produced by our independent podcast company, Feelings & Co. Literally the only place you are allowed to have feelings. Please check your feelings to make sure that they include the copyright from Feelings & Co. Our team here at Feelings & Co. is myself, Marcel Malikibu, Megan Palmer, Claire McInerney, Michelle Planton, and Grace Berry. We love our jobs here at Feelings & Co. We love being able to bring you these stories, stories that are not just sad, stories that are not just tragic, but stories that are human and remind us all of our shared humanity. There are many ways to support this work, and one of them is something that you're already doing. You're listening. If you could share this show or this episode with a few people you think would like it, that would be amazing. And if you want to join our community of listeners, you can scoot on over to our Patreon. We have a link in our show description, but it's patreon.com slash TTFA. You'll get bonus episodes. We do a weekly video for certain giving levels. We also send out very, very, very good quarterly mail. I mean, open up your mailbox and you'll be excited to get it. That kind of mail. I think that's it. God, I'm so sweaty.